Thank you very much, everyone. Um, yes, uh, Penn is home to the Sumerian Dictionary. And in fact, this very room used to be home to the Sumerian Dictionary for, I think, about eight, eight years ago. My desk was here. So if at any point I start staring slack-jawed out of the window, someone, someone give me a nudge. Um, okay, the, um, the Pennsylvania Sumerian Dictionary is here for um, many different reasons, but one very good reason is that our tablet collection, which is about 30,000 cuneiform tablets, of those, about 5,000 are probably the best collection of Sumerian literary texts to be found uh, in any museum in the world. And um, those 5,000 tablets, uh, along with uh, many other tablets in other museums, over the last century, Assyriologists, or the subfield of Sumerology, Sumerologists, have begun to piece them together into a, a collection of about just over 400 or so, mainly short literary pieces. One of the sister projects of the dictionary, uh, which is a project called Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature, which is at Oxford, has been putting transliterations, thank you, uh, and translations of uh, a fair number of those compositions online. We can see here a broad array of compositions. So we've got narrative and mythological compositions, some featuring gods, some featuring heroes. The name Gilgamesh there will be uh, particularly familiar to you. Uh, we have uh, a number of uh, historiographical compositions. Uh, we have lots and lots of what they call royal praise poetry, uh, what everybody else in the field calls royal hymns. And we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to some of these people uh, a little later. We have uh, literary letters, we have lots of hymns to gods, and we have various uh, bits of uh, wisdom literature, debate poems, dialogues, and the like. And as I say, none of these pieces is particularly long. I think that the longest one is probably about 800 lines. But altogether, I think someone estimated you've probably got a corpus about the size of the Iliad. So, it, you know, it's a decent, it's a decent amount of, of stuff. Furthermore, there's lots and lots of divine kings in it. Living divine kings, or king, divine kings who, who lived, as a good example, Shulgi, or legendary divine kings, such as Gilgamesh. Well, that's taking a minimalist perspective. If you're a maximalist, of course, Gilgamesh actually did live, but, uh, but by the by. So there's lots and lots of stuff about divine kings. So the myths have divine kings in them. The, the, the legends have divine kings. Obviously, the hymns have divine kings in them. Even the uh, other literature category has lots about divine kings in. So it is a major resource for information on divine kingship, or at least ideas about divine kingship. I would say that if there's one thing I would like you to take away from this talk, it is that the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature is a great resource for both ancient religion and divine kingship. So for those of you who are, who are not specialists, who have come to the Mesopotamian material mainly through tertiary material, uh, I would say that everything you ever learned about Mesopotamian religion is probably wrong, and you probably need to go and have a read of some of the original stuff. Okay, so that, that's, that's the sort of one main abiding point. And then I want to make uh, two substantive points, that divine kingship in Mesopotamia 
characterizes the king as performing specific cosmic roles. And they are that proactively, he must adjudicate. He must be a judge and actually do very little beyond that, at least as far as the homeland is concerned. He's actually allowed to go out and smash heads in the foreign lands with, with no problem. But within, within his own land, the paradigm is he's a judge. Reactively, he must soothe the heart of his wife, who is Inanna, uh, who I, I call here a goddess of chaos. That's probably slightly arguable, but I mean, she certainly represents the, uh, uh, the idea of changeability. So those, those basically are two specific roles that make him a divine king. And then one of, the, uh, one of the extra useful bits about Mesopotamia when you're studying divine kingship is that we have long periods when kings were not considered divine. And we also have quite a lot of literature, quite a lot of texts uh, coming from, from, from some of those periods. So I'm going to talk about how also non-divine kingship, one of the ways that they characterize the um, uh, non-divine kingship is to take these two roles when the king is divine, the king fulfills, and they reassign them to a god. With the, uh, the caveat that when a god takes on these two roles, he can, have a bit, he can be a bit more um, aggressive, shall we say, than, uh, than a, a human king can be. So anyway, so those, those, are, those are the basic points I want to make. So first of all, some geography. Due to the wonders of scale, what was once a, a single map, we can now have a journey. We can take a journey back into our past from Greece, which of course is deeply familiar to us and we tend to use as the judge of all things. And then if we head eastwards, we come to Mesopotamia, which is essentially the valley, which is essentially the valley of the Tigris River here and the Euphrates here. And already those in my audience who are experts in first millennium Assyria we're beginning to twitch a bit because actually I was lying when I said ancient Mesopotamia. I'm going to be focusing on the southern bit, which for convention we call Babylonia, which is basically this area. So you have Assyria in the north, and some of the texts I talk about we do have from the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and other Assyrian cities. But my focus really is on this southern area between the city of Ur and basically the city of Babylon. And uh, if you can just see this rather light off green writing here, where it says Suma, and up here it says Akkad. And basically, the city of Nippur is the dividing line between these two areas. The area of Suma, of course, is the place where the Sumerians came from. Sumerian is a, a language isolate, which, as far as we are aware, is related to no known living language. Although plenty of people will make claims, so I've, I've you know, Hungarian, Finn, Finnish, Turkic, Dravidian, Munda, Thai, Burmese have all been claimed as cognates with, uh, with Sumerian, but not to any degree of um, plausibility. And then the area uh, in the north, which we call Akkad, basically gives its name to the language that we call Akkadi Akkadian, which is the Semitic language of Mesopotamia. And the, the, we call it probably better known by its two main dialects, Babylonian and Assyrian, and it's a language which is uh, cognate with both Hebrew and Arabic, and they are written, however, in the same script, the cuneiform script, those wedge-shaped thingies, but they are, they are two different languages. 
Also, Sumerian basically seems to have died out as a living language at least by the end of the third millennium. So our collection of tablets in the museum is actually from about the, um, the 18th century BCE. And at that point, Sumerian is a dead language. It's being preserved rather like, say, Latin in um, medieval Europe or English secondary schools of my father's generation. <laughs> um, we assume that the, everyone was basically speaking uh, the Semitic language Akkadian, but they were still preserving Sumerian, and they continued to write in Sumerian almost till the end of cuneiform as a living uh, writing system, which is probably about the first century CE. So when, you, when you're trying to work out to yourself what's the relationship between Assyrians, Babylonians, and Sumerians, it, it can be a little bit complicated, and basically I'm going to talk about either Mesopotamians or Babylonians, and I'm not going to distinguish on the basis of, of, of language. So that, that's the area we're talking about. Uh, now some history. We have here a, a time scale, we have a, a slightly idiosyncratic periodization, and we have some famous kings. And I've shaded in green the times when Babylonian kings regularly had some kind of attribute of divinity. And I'll come on in a minute to what we mean by uh, attributes of divinity. So essentially you have a period before the old Akkadian Empire when kings were human. Of course, they had very close relationships with the gods. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, rare indeed, I suspect, as a pre-modern society where kings were not thought to have close relationships with the gods but they were uh, indeed reasonably human. This was a period, the early dynastic period, of essentially small independent city-states. And these were unified in the uh, 24th century by what we call the Old Akkadian Empire, um, founded by a guy called Sargon of Akkadai. It's with his uh, grandson, Naram-Sin, that we see the beginning of divine kingship in Mesopotamia. And he's even nice enough to tell us why. Naram-Sin, Naram-Suen, the mighty king of Agadeh, when the four quarters together revolted against him, through the love which Ishtar showed him, Ishtar being the Akkadian name for the goddess Inanna, he was victorious in nine battles in one year. And the king, the kings whom they raised against him, he captured, in view of the fact that he had protected the foundations of his city from danger. The citizens of his city requested from Ishtar in Aana, Enlil in Nippur, Dagan in Tuttle, Ninhorsag in Kesh, Ea in Eridu, Suen in Or, Shamash in Sippar, and Nergal in Kutha, that Naram-Sin be made the god of their city. And they built, Agade, and they built within Agadeh a temple dedicated to him. So this is actually um, a very interesting document. Uh, there's not that many occasions where we learn why kings were made divine. I don't think we have a similar thing for Egypt. I'm not sure. I don't think we have a similar thing for Rome. And one could argue that it's actually rather theologically a bit banal. You know, he won a big victory, big deal. Now, not only, not only does he write about being made uh, a god, he also uh, is depicted as a god in the famous victory stealer here, which... Um, there we are, and it's full glory. So, okay, pop quiz. Spot the kick. Which one's the king? <laughs> this is Naram-Sin, and he's basically ascending the mountain. He's kind of leading his troops here against the enemy here, who are 
kind of abjectly falling back and looking on in awe and falling over the edge. So on one side you've got him, uh, the, the Acadians, on the other side you've got the enemy. In, in some way, actually this always vaguely reminds me, let me just, uh, this is a, a detail of the Steeler, this is Narrington himself, and if you look here, you'll see his headdress has horns in it, or maybe he has horns. The, uh, this is a symbol, this is a fairly common symbol of divinity in Mesopotamian art, which is that gods have horns, although normally I think they have two or three sets of horns, so he, he only merits a, a single set, but, but nonetheless he is, he is portrayed as a god. Naram-Sin is the um, first king to be deified in Mesopotamia. Even his successors didn't really, it didn't really stick even with his successors. Uh, and it's not until Mesopotamia is reunified under what we call the Ur III dynasty in about 2100, Shulgi, half, about halfway through his reign, suddenly picks out the old playbook of Naram-Sin and thinks, ooh, being a god would be good. He is deified and his uh, three successors are too. This practice continues on into a period of, or two periods of competing city-states, what we call the Isin-Lasa period in the early second millennium and the old Babylonian period, goes down basically through the, the period we call the Kassite period, down to about 1200. Now, there is a slight itsy-bitsy problem with this picture. When we actually come to look at what we mean by divine king, uh, there are a number of attributes. Uh, you'll notice that all of them we find with the Earth three kings. A number of them we find in Isin Lhasa and the old Babylonian period. But by the time we get to the Kassite period, it's beginning, it's beginning to get a bit frayed. So I'll come back to that point in a minute. But let's, let's just look at the, um, what is a divine king in ancient Mesopotamia. And the most basic thing is what we call the divine determinative. And this essentially simply means putting the cuneiform symbol for God before the name of the king uh, when it's written, we assume that this would not have been pronounced. They wouldn't have said God Naram-Sin. They just would have seen, you know, Naram-Sin and just noted, mentally noted that he was in fact a god. Another aspect that we find is that in legal contexts, when you swear an oath, you can either swear it by the name of a, of a god or during this period, during these periods, you can swear it by the name of either the king in general or the specific name of the of who happens to be king at the time. We then, another feature then is divine epithets where essentially they have the word for God written after your name and presumably pronounced. We then have my favourite which is royal theophoric, the, theophoric elements in personal names. As I'm sure you're aware, as in a lot of non-anglophone societies, uh, names tended to be small sentences and they usually had either a divine name in them or a, a, at least an allusion to a divine being. And during these periods, we find names where instead of the name of, um, of a god, we find the name of a king. So, for example, under Naram-Sin, we, we have a guy called Naram-Sin Ili, which means Naram-Sin is my god. As is not unexpected, most of these names belong to members of the royal administration or to royal wives. So it wasn't that the average man in the street, as he mulled over what he was going to call his kid, suddenly thought, ooh, Naram-Sin is my god. That sounds a good idea. Now, these are obviously, these are obviously rather um, artificial names, but we do, you know, they, we find them, I don't think we, 
It's a little bit crude, this chart, but we don't find them in the Kassite period, but we do find them well into the Old Babylonian. Not in tremendous numbers, but they, they do exist. Another, uh, another feature we find is hymns in honour of the king. This is a little bit more tricky because there are plenty of hymns where they are basically petitions to a certain god to be nice to the king. There are a small number of, of hymns which seem to be specifically to the king himself. And most of those basically are found in Earth 3. The minus there for Naram Seen is, is we, we don't have any literary texts from the time of Naram Seen. So, I mean, he may have had, had people compose hymns in his honour. Uh, he may not, we don't know. Temples. A temple to you as king rather than to the god. This we find, we find in Earth 3. Uh, we haven't actually found a temple to Naram Seen, but it does say in that uh, inscription we just saw that they, they built him one, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, another instance is having a festival named after you. Uh, festivals, of course, were normally named after uh, traditional gods. And then finally, um, offerings for uh, cult statues of living kings. Uh, dead kings were always liable to get cult offerings, but um, living kings is, is much more restricted. The heyday of divine kingship really is the Earth 3 period. The, even by the old Babylonian period, even though I've got plus signs here, uh, it's becoming a little, they're becoming a little less uh, common, uh, these features. And when we actually look at contemporary political life with contemporary with our collection of tablets, there's not a great deal of evidence that divinity played a role in the real life of the king or the life of the real king. Um, however, within the literary material, divine kingship is uh, in this period is alive and well. So briefly, um, how do we actually approach the topic of divine kingship? Basically two options. We can either explore it or we can criticise it. So exploring it. When people talk about divine kingship, uh, both in Mesopotamia and more generally, we are really talking of a system in which we imagine that there are two zones. There is a natural world that we can see, we can touch, we can measure, and there is a supernatural world uh, about which we can speculate, but which we, um, you know, we, we, you can't actually put your finger on. Furthermore, that the natural world is at the mercy of forces that exist in the supernatural world, and that the king's job uh, is to mediate between those two worlds. The, the fonds et origo of this kind of work is, of course, Sir James Fraser, in his famous book, The Golden Bough. Fraser's influence has really come in two waves. During his own lifetime, uh, in the, the late 19th and the early 20th century, and, and, and for a short while afterwards, the focus was really on why the king mediated. And the reason why he mediated between the natural and the supernatural world, worlds was to ensure fertility. And the king's body was seen as almost a fetish object that people could carry out actions on and bingo, it would have an effect on the, uh, the supernatural world. And, and, and at the core of this belief is the idea that if the king's healthy, the cosmos is healthy. If the king isn't healthy, then the best thing to do is kill him and replace him with someone who is healthy before, before he, he kind of contaminates everything. Uh, so the, this twin thing of fertility and regicide is really the, at the heart of the sort of first wave of Fraserian studies of um, 
divine kingship. Fraser himself basically got his material from classical literatures and uh, missionary reports. The publication of the book led to hordes of, uh, or well, not hordes, but uh, a search for real living uh, divine kings and regicide amongst um, the uh, non-Western peoples, particularly in Africa. A lot of work in the sort of 20s and 30s in a number of disciplines focuses on this idea of, of, of fertility. And uh, within Assyriology, for example, there is a school called the Myth and Ritual School who applied Fraser's work uh, to the Mesopotamian material. However, by the, um, by the 60s, uh, a rather different strand of thought going back to Fraser became much more prominent and that focused not so much on why he was mediating between natural and supernatural but more how he was mediating and you essentially come up with a couple of um, uh, sort of different models one of which the king is seen as a barrier between the dangerous supernatural world and our world and that in being a barrier, in being a guard, he himself takes on some of the dangerous qualities uh, of the world that he guards us against. Uh, and so uh, scholars, for example, have used terms such as uh, sacred monster, uh, which I think is Beidelman's term, and uh, stranger king, which Marshall Salins uh, has popularised. And then a, a rather opposite uh, look at, at how the king mediates, sees him more as a much more serene filter who stands at the centre of his world and from whom order, cosmic order, ripples outwards. And uh, Clifford Geertz, for example, I think has used the, the term exemplary centre. But the, and I think one of the, um, one of the things about uh, philological disciplines is that they tended to have been invaded by people using Fraser Mark I a couple of generations ago and didn't like it one bit. Certainly this is the case for a seriology. Uh, but also, um, they, there's, there's, they, they've had rather less real engagement with the second wave. A lot of that work, anyway, has been, has been criticised a lot both within a seriology and, and without. And a lot of people simply just dismiss it, which actually would be <laughs> the end of the talk. So, um, um, but... Two, two waves of criticism in particular. First of all, there was the, uh, the functionalist anthropological school took issue with the uh, ideas about fertility and regicide, and they basically saw imagery about the divinity of the king in terms of it was a way of legitimating the king or it was a way of legitimating the fact that the king wasn't very strong. Divine kingship was interesting in the sense of what it did politically, but what it was about was less interesting. More recently, uh, reacting to the work of people like Geertz and Salins, who were looking at the, uh, the ways in which the king mediate, uh, you've had people trying to, criticizing that work for being very, very ahistorical, and then trying to, trying to use some of the insights, create a much more fluid model of the interaction between ideas about the divinity, the divinity of the king and how the king functions within political life. And then just very briefly, Assyriology, as I said, Assyriology met Mr. Fraser back in the 20s and did not like the cut of his jib one little bit. And I would say that in the main, the, the interest in divine kingship
has either been to see how divinity legitimizes the king, or a little bit, a little bit more interesting is, is, is um, I, I touched upon when I looked at Naram Sin's headdress, what kind of level of divinity does the, uh, does the king have? I want to really look at this more in terms of the history of ideas, uh, not the history of the interaction of ideas and society. I think one of the problems that we, we tend to have is that Assyriologists as a discipline are not that interested in ideas on their own. And I think one of the dangers, it's, it's all very good looking at this interaction, but one of the dangers of that is, particularly in the case of a society like ancient Mesopotamia, where we're still groping our way towards a better understanding, if you immediately start trying to interpret ideas, what little you know about the ideas, in terms of what little you know about the, um, the social and political changes, I think there's a tendency to sort of clamp things together Whereas it's probably, I think it's much more useful to, uh, to see what the ideas, how the ideas work out on their own. And plus there's also the question of when you look at divine kingship in terms of stranger kings or exemplary censors, there's, there's a great tendency to think in terms of monolithic blocks of knowledge that you kind of, in, that, that each uh, little Babylonian inherits from Aeon's past. And there's much less idea of how ideas change and evolve over time through arguments and counter-argument. So what I want to sort of begin doing is to, is to at least discern a basic model of debate within the ideas. So that rather than talking about what model of kingship you have, to begin to look at what kind of arguments you have around the topic of kingship. Um, and so I want to look very briefly, first of all I want to contextualise these ideas in terms of how do you imagine that the gods, or how do you imagine that the cosmos was, was governed? And then I want to look very briefly at divine kingship in the old Babylonian period, and then non-divine kingship in the first millennium. First of all, the nature of divine government. You need to think in terms of who the gods are, what kind of creation happened at the beginning of time, how the gods intervene since then, how aspects of life in the natural world are inspired by the divine, and then finally, how everything is ordered on an everyday level. So in the Old Babylonian period, the Old Babylonian pantheon uh, is, a, is a slightly odd pantheon. There's no real head of the pantheon. We, we, you kind of go looking at these things thinking there should be a Zeus, there should be that kind of figure. Really, they, the sky god is kind of top dog, but quite often he's associated with Enlil, who is basically a god of the Earth's surface. Quite often Enlil is portrayed as top god. And then there'll be other occasions where, we'll see one in a minute, where Arn, Enlil and Enki are portrayed as top gods. And then sometimes you even have four gods mentioned. So that there's, um, there's, no real se there's no sense really that there's one guy in charge that perhaps we're familiar with from, say, Greek mythology. Uh, a couple of other gods that will be um, cropping up are Ninorta, who is a war god, and Inanna, who I've mentioned previously. And then finally, there's the, what the gods actually do in Mesopotamian thought. Basically, they eat, <laughs> then they go to sleep, <laughs> then they wake up. And it's a good idea if there's something there for them to eat. Uh, if there isn't, uh, trouble, trouble, deep trouble can happen. Now, one of the aspects of the mythology that we see in uh, the old Babylonian uh, Sumerian text that we have here is no one ever 
actually sets things completely to right. Enlil, for example, there is no proper creation story where Enlil does very much. Enki there is a, has a creation story. It's called Enki in the World Order. He sets everything in order, and then finally, and he, and he hands out to various gods duties, bits of the world to, to look after. And then finally, Inanna comes up to him and says, what about me? You haven't given me anything. And he basically says, oh, your job is to turn everything upside down. So it's kind of like a creation story with an inbuilt delete button. Ninorta um, goes out and sets the foreign lands in order, but he doesn't do that with the homeland. And in, in another myth, when he comes back, his, his return is, a, is a, a time of deep tension. And then finally, we have a flood story, uh, Atrahasis, uh, which is actually in Akkadian. But again, the, uh, the gods in that story start off kind of putting the world to rights. They, they basically fall out with each other, then they end up handing the job to humanity. So in all of these visions of the world, it's a deeply fallible one. When we look at uh, irregular divine interventions in, uh, in subsequent history, this is not always good. Arm Enlil Enkin in Horsang have decided its fate to overturn the divine powers of Sumer, to lock up the favourable rain in its home, to destroy the city, to destroy the house, to destroy the cattle pen, etc., etc., etc. So the, this, this uh, quadrumvirate here, um, even when they do intervene in your, in your life, it's not necessarily good news. <laughs> divine inspiration. There's an idea that the... Uh, so everyday ordering we basically look to the king. As a human being, the king is responsible for making sure the gods are fed. I.e., if, if the gods wake up and the food's not there, it's the king's fault. But as a divine role, he basically has, and when we look in the text, a small number of times he's equated with actual gods in various ways. And it tends to be a fairly restrictive list of gods. There's the sun god, there's a god called Dumuzi, and there's a god called Ishtaran. And basically, what you get there is that proactively, the sun god is the god of justice. Reactively, he is the god Dumuzi, who is the spouse of Inanna. This can be good. The king goes to her holy thighs with head held high. He goes to the thighs of Inanna with head held high. Amaushum Galana, which is a byname of Dumuzi, but here refers to the king, lies down beside her and caresses her holy thighs. After the lady has made him rejoice with her holy thighs on the bed, after Holy Inanna has made him rejoice with her holy thighs on the bed, she relaxes, question mark, hmm, with him on her bed. Inindagan, that being the king, you are indeed my beloved. So that's good. However, can be not so good. They followed her to the great apple tree in the plain of Kulaba. Inanna has gone to the netherworld, uh, died, when wangled her way out, and she needs some substitutes for her. She's got a bunch of demons with her, looking for them. There was Dumuzi, who the king is identified with, clothed in a magnificent garment and seated magnificently on a throne. The demons seized him there by his thighs. The seven of them poured the milk from his churns. The seven of them shook their heads like something or other. They would not let the shepherd play the pipes and flute before her. She looked at him. It was a look of death. She spoke to him. It was the speech of anger. She shouted at him. It was the shout of heavy guilt. How much longer? Take him away. Holy Inanna gave Dumuzi the shepherd into their hands. So, can be good, can be bad. When we come to the, when we come to the first millennium, however, 
basically, we see uh, a rather different situation. The Pantheon now has a head, a proper head. Marduk, who is the patron god of Babylon. And in the great poem of creation in Numeralish, we see Marduk creating the world in an almost perfect fashion. Moreover, as he does this, he takes on some familiar roles. So the first time he's addressed, his grandfather says to him, Mariutu, Mariutu, the sun, the sun god, the sun god of the gods. A bit further on, when the gods had given kingship over Zamadok, they said to him, expressions of goodwill and obedience. Henceforth, you shall be the provider for our sanctuaries. So provisioning. And then finally, his relationship with Tiamat, who is the sea, is a, uh, is a female personification of the sea, has a rather kind of marrying the dangerous woman feel about it. You named Kingu, he said to her, to be spouse for you. Though he had no right to be, you set him up for chief god. So the, the roles that were formerly used to characterise the divine king, we see in this poem being, being used to characterise Marduk. And so what happens to the king in this situation? Well, when we look at how, if, if Marduk created everything perfectly, how do things go wrong? He can go on holiday, he can go on vacation. We have that in one poem. Another, another way of doing it is the king can be a baddie. And I'm not going to bother with those two. I'm going to put one of the chief festivals uh, of the Babylonian New Year. The king says, I did not sin, Lord of countries. I was not neglectful of your godship. I did not destroy Babylon. I did not command its overthrow, etc., etc. So the king is basically saying, I created order by doing nothing. And had I done anything, it would have been bad. <laughs> so finally, I think we need to... My points again. Electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature. Anything you want to know about Sumerian literature, that's your first place of call. In the old Babylonian, in the divine kingship, as in old Babylonian literature, proactively, the king is just a judge, no more. If he does more than that, it causes trouble. Reactively, he must soothe the heart of Inanna. If he gets bolshe and she, and, and she destroys things, again, that's not good. And then finally, in the first millennium, we can see those same motifs being reassigned to a god who will create order. And the king himself becomes a figure who is as much a danger. Now, just one very last point. These are two different models. They can coexist. Just as, you can, just as we have both Keynesians and Hayekian economists telling us what to do, so there are periods that you can find old Babylonian literature where you have that latter kind of model, and you can have first money stuff where you have the former kind of model. Thank you very much.